you're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview Dr. Peter Burreal and Terry Gibson from the American Water Security Project. We talk about how uh, wastewater treatment and, and sewage is wreaking havoc on the fishery down in Florida and what they're doing to help solve the problem. Hope you enjoy it. This episode of the Sustainable Angler Podcast is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy that improves the social, environmental, and economic bottom lines of your business. Profit sustainably. All right, thanks for joining me. Uh, I've got Peter Burrill and Terry Gibson from the American Water Security Project on the call. Um, so uh, thanks, guys, and uh, how's your day going? Well, we, uh, we're really excited to be on this call, and thanks for having us. Uh, we, we should be fishing, but uh, this is more important. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> um. Well, great. Well, well, I thought I would uh, kick things off um, on the call. If uh, Peter, you wanted to start with just a, an introduction of, of yourself and, and your background, and then um, we'll, uh, we'll let uh, Terry do the same. Thank you, Rick. My name is Dr. Peter Burrill. I'm a native Floridian. I'm in Melbourne, Florida, and I have a PhD in environmental sciences. Um, I'm a marine and estuarine uh, and coastal ecologist. Um, I also have a background in science policy. I've been involved in um, land use issues in Florida and how they relate to coastal water quality and fisheries. Awesome. Um, and uh, Terry, what, what about you? Well, I spent the, I guess, the first half of the first half of my career in the in journalism business, like you, and um, I worked for magazines such as Surfer Magazine, and became the editor of Saltwater Fly Fishing Magazine, and I spent um, four or five very happy years with the Florida Sportsman family, and, and I went on to become the, the fishing editor of Outdoor Life. Um, but throughout those um, those stints of service, um, I was always covering and engaging in. Um, in conservation issues and specifically water quality, um, which is how I got to know Dr. Brill. Um, we were young surfers and fishermen that were tired of getting sick and watching really cool things die. And so the second half and hopefully the rest of my career has been devoted to, to, to conservation initiatives. And, um, I've worked for about the last 10 years as a consultant for just about every major, um, internet and most, most minor internet, um, national, international, conservation organizations, especially those who relate to fishing. Um, and so um, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to put together the American Water Security Project. And my first call was to my, my old friend, Peter Burrell, who taught me just about everything I know about uh, wastewater and um, pollution and coastal fisheries. Well, that's, that, that's super cool. And, and I had, um, 
Um, we I, we have a mutual friend and in, in Brandon Schuler, um, who I know is in, in, involved with the project, and he um, he had reached out, and uh, what y'all are doing is is pretty uh, fascinating, I think, um, just because it's not something that gets uh, a lot of people know about. I feel like, um, especially when it comes to wastewater. Um, and I was wondering if um, one of y'all would just provide a little bit of background on American Water Security Project, um, what it is that y'all do, and, and what are, um, you know, we'll maybe even give a state of Florida uh, coastal water quality and, and habitats. Well, I'll give the background, uh, again, this is Terry. Um, so, you know, and, and the background begins literally 20 years ago. Um, when I was working in Surfer Magazine, one of the first campaigns I worked on was the Beaches Act or the Beach Act. And that was, um, you know, everybody was getting sick all the time, fishermen, surfers, swimmers um, from, from fecal bacteria. And we, we got um, federal legislation passed that funds um, routine um, water quality monitoring. Um, so if you ever heard of a beach closure, it was probably because of the monitoring through the Beach Act. Mm -hmm. About that time, I met Peter and a few short years later, Brandon and um you know, at that in those days, the cruise ships were dumping you know, sewage in in, um, in Florida waters. We had a growing um, sep leaky septic tank crisis, and and there were sewage raw sewage being spilled all over the place. And so, Peter and I and a few others um, put together a, a t an informal team and took the issues to the Tallahassee legislature and, and managed to get cruise ships to stop prevent the cruise ships from any future. Um, dumping of raw sewage within state waters and we also managed to get a, a date certain set for some um some sewage outfalls that have killed our, our florida reefs but you know in the intervening years we've worked together but we've had little or no funding and um and we've all been busy doing other things and we've done this out of a sense of love and, and self-defense and a couple of years ago i, I work as a part-time hunting guide these days as well um, can't quite ever get guiding out of my system and a couple of years ago, um, some longtime clients of mine uh, and friends, I literally was like their bird boy when I was at their dove hunts when I was eight years old. The older gentleman, they, they called me and they'd been diving down Fort Lauderdale and said, um, you know, we caught a limit of lobsters around a shit pipe. Can we, uh, can we eat them? And I said, absolutely not, sir. You should bring them directly to me. And they laughed and they said, ah, yeah, we know what you're going to do. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to eat them. But a couple of days later, they went, uh, they went fishing in the Mosquito Lagoon, which is the northernmost um, water body associated with the Indian River complex on the on the east side of Florida. Um, it's about 156 miles long, long I think. It runs roughly from Jupiter to New Smyrna. And they went out and they've been fishing the Mosquito Lagoon since they were little boys in the early 50s. And they saw not a blade of seagrass, and they caught one redfish. And these guys are very good fishermen. And they caught one redfish, and it had about 10 hook holes in its mouth. And they felt like that that fish had been caught, you know, a dozen times. I said, what's going on? They hadn't been back to the lagoon in a number of years. He said, what did this? And I said, sewage, sewage. It's trashed that, that you know, the ecosystems. It's killed all the habitat. And, um, and, uh, and you know, the fisheries are just, are just plummeting. And so, um, you know, they, they, they'd been um, donors to other campaigns before, and, they offered to put the the, the seed money down for um, the American Water Security Project, with the provisions that we focus on wastewater and, and, and wastewater alone, on um, on a policy level, on a funding and repairs level, and um, 
you know, no sooner do we get off the ground, we got a lot of other support from, from other organizations. To, and, um, and so we've been going great guns now for about a year and a half, two years. And, and, uh, um, you know, Brandon Schuler, Dr. Brandon Schuler, he's a longtime outdoor rider, former director of the Outdoor Riders Association. You know, he was my pick for, to be our executive director because he's got so much administrative leadership experience, so much experience in water quality areas. And then, um, Magali Fuentes is not with us today, but she's our, our projects manager. And, you know, we, we had a people like, you know, fighting to be on our board. And, and, um, so anyway, what we do on a daily basis is work with or against, depending on their attitude, um, utilities and, and the, the, uh, the municipalities that, that, that own them and, um, and, and try to get them to make the long overdue and badly needed improvements to wastewater infrastructure, whether that's, you know, a septic to sewer conversion on a large scale or increasing the, the volumetric capacity or, um, or treatment levels at their plants so that they can do a better job processing sewage, um, or, you know, going to state and federal, um, um, appropriators and making sure that there's funds there to make these expensive projects possible. And so you know, over the last couple of years, we've got record funding from the Florida legislature, and we significantly plussed up most of the pots of money and if, that Congress provides the states to um, to increase, to improve their, their wastewater infrastructure. And that's what we'll continue to do. Awesome. And, and, and that was, you know, for, for me when I was first getting a, acquainted with y'all um, and, and looking at your website and, and all that, it was, I mean, I, I was kind of blown away, you know, that the wastewater pollution um, alone was, was having this sort of sort of impact. So I am, I, I am curious to know um, from, from Peter, you know, what, what, what are the state of, of Florida or Southeast water quality right now? What, what, what does it look like? Well, Rick, I think it's pretty widely known and accepted now, whether you're a fisherman or homeowner or certainly those of us in the scientific community, that the state of water quality around the southeastern United States on the coast, uh, throughout Florida, whether you're on the coast or you're in inland lakes and rivers, the water quality is on the decline and it's very poor in most areas. Um, to what we've spoken about already here, you know, we are overpopulating this region. Uh, Florida, for example, when my parents moved to Florida uh, decades and decades ago, uh, there were less than 10 million people. Uh, there are now 22 million people in the state of Florida, and we're moving rapidly toward 30 million people. Um, and most of us are along the coast. We live on homes near the water. Uh, and all of these um, homes, uh, we, we produce wastewater. And, you know, Florida had been a very rural um, state for a long time. Uh, we built out a lot of areas on residences with septic tanks in places that were very low. Uh, Florida is known for its high levels of rainfall. And this was just a, a bad prescription uh, in the long term, once we got to high densities and high population, uh, that we were going to have a, a serious problem uh, with the consequences of wastewater loading to our surface waters and groundwaters, and indeed this has happened. So uh, we're now realizing that as agriculture becomes less and less prominent and Florida goes uh, in a transition from being a rural agronomic uh, culture to a more urbanized, suburbanized culture, we're quickly transitioning from agriculture being the leading source of nutrient loading to now urban wastewater becoming the more prominent source 
particularly adjacent uh, surface waters. So how is this uh, translated to what we see on the water? And I think fishermen are up in arms as well as anybody about the quality and the state of the water. You know, we many of us grew up in these areas with crystal clear waters, uh, with seagrasses on the bottom, um, coastal wetlands that were healthy uh, inland. We had cypress marshes, uh, beautiful wetlands that bordered many of our lakes. Uh, the bottoms of our lakes were, were sand bottom with tape grass and had a very abundant fisheries. The same for our coastal waters. Uh, I grew up along the Indian River Lagoon, which is 40% of the east coast of Florida. When I was younger, I could see top to bottom in the lagoon. We had lush seagrasses everywhere, oyster beds everywhere, hard clam fisheries. It was um, just a beautiful, great place to grow up and be around and, and to recreate. And those days are over. So the coastal waters that many of us now know and are accustomed to, the water's murky, uh, the seagrasses are all but gone, and we don't have shell fisheries anymore. So we've seen these cascading impacts and a very strong linkage between population growth, water quality decline, and now a loss of habitat and a loss of fisheries. And now these areas are now characterized largely as dead zones. When you lose the, the water quality goes so bad, you lose the habitat, all of a sudden, there's no auction at the bottom, and we, we can't even grow uh, any benthic macrophytes that were dominated by harmful algal blooms. So we've seen this transition driven by population to where we have lost the beautiful things around Florida and the southeastern United States that have attracted us there in the first place. Yeah, that's, I mean, so, so you mentioned population, by the way, and that sort of is, is something that that sticks out in my mind. Um, I know that there's a number of of issues that sort of, in addition to wastewater, um, you know, things related to, to climate change, or um, also, you know, Florida is now sadly infamous for for algal blooms and um, seagrass and, and coral reef decline. But at the end of the day, you know, population. In, in terms of just sustainability um, issues, I think is is an important one to to discuss a little bit, and that's sort of you know what we would call the, the tragedy of the commons, right? You know, you have so many people extracting from the same resource until it becomes an unsustainable one, um, I, I guess, basically. And um, I was wondering if if you could elaborate on that a little bit in terms of you know how is I know we just talked about population, but you know how how that's related to uh, driving algal blooms and, and and what you're seeing in, in seagrass and coral reef decline. Of course. Well, to drive this point home, um, you know when you develop a large suburban area on a quarter acre lots, each home with a family in it and a septic tank, uh, or and for other examples, when you have a a large urban area with a wastewater collection system and a treatment system that is not maintained appropriately, doesn't have the proper investment, it's not unsurprising that we have wastewater, uh, you know, as population booms and we build out in these communities that are, are in low areas right along the coast, that we're mobilizing a lot of wastewater to the coastal environment. And this is uh, a, a real problem compared to other sources because Wastewater is very rich in the nutrients that fuel algal blooms. For example, wastewater is very high in ammonium 
and it's also very high in soluble reactive phosphorus. These are two types of nutrients that largely fuel algal blooms, whether they are phytoplankton blooms, uh, the water getting too green, too brown, or we even have uh, blooms such as epiphytes that grow over healthy seagrasses or seaweeds or that preferentially will take up wastewater nutrients and they will overgrow seagrasses. And we've also found in the coastal waters around the state of Florida that seaweeds are preferentially consuming wastewater nutrients and they are overgrowing and have really been a major driver for the decline of the coral reefs on the Florida reef tract, uh, either off the Florida Keys or all the way up to about St. Lucie County. So we've lost a, a several thousand year old coral reef uh, due to wastewater, primarily from uh, algal blooms that are feeding off of wastewater and overgrowing seagrasses uh, inshore and then overgrowing coral reefs offshore. And these are directly related to the human population boom in Florida. And and how how does that relate? So is is it is it population? So like the one of the one of the things that I have said is that in terms of environmental threats to our fisheries, right? You kind of have what I in just to just simplify it, right? I'm sure, or I know it's more complex than this, but just to simplify things, you kind of have what I call the three P's that are environmental threats to, to fisheries. You have population. You have pollution, um, which that in the form of um, whether it's wastewater or greenhouse gas emissions related to climate change or plastic pollution. And then you also have policy, right? And, 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 and policy uh, can also drive some of this. But I guess the when it comes to the, the problems with the that y'all are having with with wastewater infrastructure and 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 how that's working towards um, you know killing off algal blooms and seagrass and coral reef. How does that relate um, to climate change? Well, let me first well, start. Hang, hang, Peter, hang on, Peter. Hang on. I want to I want to back up to the to the policy piece of this just to finish your your thought earlier, Rick. Um, so really, it's an issue of what of what um, planners call concurrency. Um, and this state, you know, when they think about like roads and development, you know, they think about how many more lanes you need. You know, when they think about schools and, you know, more families moving here, more often than not, they've got a plan to, to, to add the, 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 um, to add more, you know, more seats in the classroom, if not more schools. Um, people have just not thought about wastewater. It's not sexy. You know, it's just flush and done and you stop thinking about it until your estuary is dead or your lake's bright green. And so, you know, from a policy standpoint and a population standpoint, what we need worse than anything here and everywhere else in the United States is, is concurrency, especially in the face of climate change, um, you know, where so many of these septic tanks are going underwater and, um, or, you know, these rain events are inundating septic and stormwater systems and causing mass spills. So the magic, the magic um, word here is concurrency, and um, we're nowhere near that. Interesting. And so, well, well so how, how does how does all of this relate to our fisheries, right? So we know that wastewater um, is causing problems in Florida with algal blooms, seagrass die off, coral reef decline. We've got population 
sort of exploding that's causing issues with infrastructure, which is directly related to policy, right? So this is all sort of man-made problems. Well, how does all of that affect the, the fisheries in Florida? Rick, let me speak to that fundamentally. And this is what I think everybody needs to realize is that, you know, when we came to places like Florida and the Southeast United States, when the population was lower, our loadings of nutrients to our groundwaters and our surface waters were, were much lower than they are now. So let's, let's kind of think about this um, in, in the, um, the concept of nutrition. You know, nutrients stimulate plant and algal growth, which in some ways can be a good thing. When we grow a garden, we want to put some fertilizer down to make our crops grow quickly and produce good fruits and vegetables. A little bit of nutrients is good, and I use the parallel of time of eating one candy bar. So if we were going to go for a run, and I'm a runner, uh, it might be a good thing to eat a candy bar. But when you eat 10 candy bars, you're going to get sick. So what has happened to our coastal waters and our fisheries, essentially, is that we've overfed them. So where these pristine environments with low nutrients evolve uh, with very prolific fisheries under these, quote, oligotrophic or low-nutrient conditions, when we over-enrich them with too many nutrients, we made them sick, and we caused a severe dysfunction in the food web to where we are not uh, producing the right kind of phytoplankton, the right kind of algae, and the right type of habitat that will support fisheries. In fact, in many cases, we are now feeding toxic algae that clog the gills of filter feeders, such as oysters and clams. Mm -hmm. So we don't have that secondary production of food base that our fin fish need. So all of a sudden, you have created toxic algae, you've killed off the food base, and then subsequently, we're losing our fin fisheries because they neither have the habitat or the right type of food as a consequence of over-enriching these nursery coastal waters. So we have from the bottom all the way up to our fin fisheries, even our offshore fisheries, we are affecting them with nutrient overrichment caused by sewage pollution. So this is the link between population, nutrient pollution, and loss of fisheries is that we have overfed our coastal waters and they are now in a state of dysfunction to where we can't even support uh, our historic fisheries because we've lost the habitat and we are losing the food base uh, with toxic algae uh, from our nutrient pollution. And Rick, I, I, I wrote um, a book about 12, 13 years ago called Sportsman's Best Trout about the spotted sea trout, Sinusone nebulosa. Spotted sea trout is the most popular recreation, recreationally targeted fish in Florida uh, certainly it is in Texas. I don't have data on that. I, I assume it probably is in Louisiana, North Carolina, the Carolinas as well. I mean, you know this as well as we do, Georgia. And, you know, the spotted sea trout is an incredibly fecund, fertile fish. You know, if I've read that, you know, at least in, down here in the warmer zones that, you know, between about April and October, and I've been told this by scientists, that, you know, the big females can generate something like 800,000 eggs every two weeks. Wow. And so basically, if you just don't, you just make sure you don't kill all the big females and you keep the water in the, in the habitats they need, you know, relatively healthy, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a great sea trout fishery. And, you know, I guided here and ran a small charter service in the Indian River Lagoon for a number of years. And I've pretty much given up because of the trout are gone and, and, and everything else has declined too. But they're so seagrass and oyster dependent. Um, you know, this incredibly fertile, incredibly popular fish. I mean, I can't imagine 
what spotted sea trout fishing means to the recreational fishing economy nationwide. It's, it's unfathomable. Um, and, and it's in so that now the state, you know, and most of the has just come back with new regulations. Thank God that that significantly reduced the the take of these of these fish. But you know, it really wasn't ever a fishing problem. It was a habitat and water quality quality decline problem. And I just can't believe it in the intervening years of twelve years since I wrote that book that you know if I wanted to take my three year old out with a, with a with a um a bucket of shrimp and a popping cork, I can't catch him a trout. I might catch him a ladyfish or catfish once I'm lucky. Um, and this, and, and I live where the world record trout came from. So, um, you know, it's just, this stuff has incredible social and economic, um, repercussions for our community. I mean, just, it, it, it's hit me in the wall. I mean, I was making 40, 50 grand a year, basically letting two young guys run charters on my boat. That income's gone. I mean, and to, to put it in, uh, you know, it, to line in the waterways, you know, I started about 10 years ago, we, you know, we were off, you know, I, tr- I preferred not to fish with bait. I usually fish with soft plastics or prefer- preferably fly tackle if I had guys that could cast. And, you know, we'd be bouncing soft plastics and, you know, clouds or minnows and, you know, bendbacks and stuff, you know, we'd be working it through the grass for trout and redfish and other species, and other species. And all of a sudden we started catching the slimy algae on every cast. And then it was this, this 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 reddish purple seaweed looking stuff that we just no matter how quote weedless the flyer lure was we couldn't we couldn't you know you, you just you're getting fouled every other cast it's incredibly annoying and I called Peter I said what is this stuff and he says you know, it's grassalaria and uh, some other type of seaweed algae and it's because you're about to lo- and you're about to lose your entire seagrass meadow count now wow. eighteen months gone they completely smothered it completely I mean we just it just collapsed. Boom, and it was a long time in coming. I just didn't have the scientific training to understand what what, what I was seeing, and and uh, but when it went down, it went down. So, and anyway, and, I'm sorry for the long winded example. No, it's just really sad. That, no. that, that, that's a, that's a great example, and 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 that is a direct result of nutrient over enrichment. And, and wastewater pollution is that is that right? I mean, that's, that's right. And you know, if there's one thing that Peter just explained that I, I didn't understand, even after about a decade of working with him, you know, we've got to do a better job getting scientists talking to fishermen. And I'm not knocking Peter; he does better than, than just about anybody I know. But I, I didn't understand that you know not all nutrients are created equal, and I don't think most people do. I didn't understand that these that the that wastewater contained you know a concentration of nutrients and minerals that are particularly biologically available to these harmful algal blooms that they'll eat it over any other stuff that's in the water from any other sources, and that, and that it, it between its biological availability and the pathogens that the wastewater introduces to the water. I mean, this is just about the most dangerous stuff you could imagine. You, you could ever want, you never not want to mess with. And we, and we routinely try to ignore the problem. That is, that's, that's, un, that's unreal. I mean, to think that something that, you know, as we mentioned, I guess it starts with population, but then to think that it's something is, nutrient over enrichment is you know I, I remember growing up i mean you wouldn't you just didn't think twice about you know i, I because of this i'm you know being somewhat aware of it you know i mean i don't put fertilizer or anything in my yard um because i live down the street down the street from a creek and i got a drainage ditch behind my house you know and i know that that's not good and i know that you know in charleston we're seeing our uh oyster populate we're trying to growing back by uh, replanting oyster reefs and, and things like that. But, you know, we're, we're starting to see that decline and we don't necessarily have the same 
seagrass, but surely that has a similar effect here than it would in, in Florida, right? With you, you know, we've got a huge population boom happening in Charleston right now, um, and surely all of that uh, wastewater and and even runoff um, is very nutrient rich, and and, and it sounds like probably too much. Rick, let me speak to that. Uh, NOAA has done an estuarine eutrophication survey, and the Indian River Lagoon here on the east coast of Florida, as well as Charleston Harbor, are two of the most, quote, hyper-eutrophic estuaries in the southeastern United States, meaning wow. that they're both way enriched with nutrients and are showing and expressing this enrichment by having high levels of chlorophyll and algal blooms. So just like the estuaries of uh, Florida along the coast, Charleston Harbor is also suffering from excess nutrient enrichment and algal blooms. And to your point, these toxic algal blooms in Charleston Harbor and its over-enrichment are leading to demise of your historic oyster, oyster reefs, these filter feeders. And as you know, many fisheries such as uh, red redfish uh, that depend on oyster reefs for habitat. So not only are you killing the oysters and stuffing them with toxic algae, but you're also reducing a critical habitat for your fisheries there uh, in coastal Carolina. Hmm. Yeah. I, I did not know that, but it, it anecdotally, you know, we've been able to see that, um, I mean, there's great red fishing here. I don't want to, you know, downplay it, but, you know, when you compare it to, you talk to some guides and things that have been guiding for, 10 or 20 years. And I mean, and they'll tell you that, Hey, look, this is, this is not the same fishery it used to be. Um, which is, which is scary. I mean, this is sort of the, the, the canary in the coal mine, but it just, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, like you said, it's, it's unsexy. We're talking about nutrient over enrichment. Um, but it's such an important, I think, conversation, you know, I mean, it, it's because it, 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 it population isn't going to quit growing. So how, what do we, you know what do, what do we need to do to address it um, is the you know the the, the overarching question. But I, I want to I don't know. Well, can I, you can I ask you there? Yeah, Rick, can I? What do we do to address it? And again, here we get to the policy question. And I am the government affairs guy. Um, you know, I don't have much hair left, but one of the things that makes me pull out my few remaining hairs is when I see people trying to do oyster and bivalve restoration in places where the water is too filthy to ever support them. I can't tell you how much money has been wasted in the Indian River Lagoon, for example, on on these these feel good projects where the public will come out and get to put some oysters out and shell out or whatever else and feel good. And these things don't make them make it to sexual maturity because their their fee, as Peter said a minute ago, their feet their 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 you know their their gills are are, are clogged by harmful algae algae. So you know what do we do about it? You go address the problem at, at its at its at its source, and and that's at you know the sewer line, the sewer main, or the sewer plant, or you know the, at, at the wastewater at the at the septic tank. That's where you address the problem, and that's how. And again, it's an issue of concurrency. We can have a lot of people in an area um, as long as we manage our, our nutrients right, and that starts with managing our wastewater um, properly, responsibly. And, and unfortunately, yeah, the, the temptation is to expand the tax base and, and just do it on, you know, cheap, you know, just build now and we'll fix it later. It doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. So have, have, having a little bit more of a, a long term view in terms of um, what, what are our impacts? Um, yeah. But I know we, we, we and, and, and was that, Peter, did you want to 
keep going there because I did have another another question that I was thinking about. Well, I think Terry did a good job with making the linkage that we really need to go back to the sources. And the point about population, if in Florida, uh, there there is an estimate by the American Society of Civil Engineers that Florida is $18 billion behind in having its wastewater infrastructure functional to the point where it removes nutrients so that um, our coastal waters and groundwaters are not polluted and have a fighting chance to support habitat and fisheries. We are so far behind. So to Terry's point, uh, if we're talking about the future and what can we do, uh, you know, we've got to have policy that takes care of the sins of the past. The $18 billion in Florida, it has to be spent uh, to get us to the level where we're not polluting on a daily basis. Uh, but further, as we grow out and we and uh, there's no question that we're going to see population growth in the southeastern United States along the coast. It's a given. The question is, how do we develop? And so, uh, you know, we can have uh, high density growth if we have appropriate wastewater infrastructure. So from the planning perspective and moving forward, uh, we must be resolute about having uh, development that is sustainable. And so I think mm-hmm. I like the topic of this this podcast, Sustainable Angler. We've got to have sustainable communities to support sustainable fisheries. So it all starts up on the land and how we're growing and how we're living and how we're developing our communities. If we want to have good fisheries, we've got to have sustainable wastewater practices on the land. Yeah, and 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 something that that, that you mentioned there too that is has kind of got me me thinking. You mentioned um um earlier just a little bit earlier about hey you know the, the NOAA study with, with Charleston Harbor and and um you know we're talking about um you know a lot of these negative consequences of uh population and, and development and I was wondering I mean are are, do you, are there any success stories that, that that give you hope in terms of restored estuaries if if we're able to so, so you know, appropriate this eighteen billion dollars and 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 fill that gap. I mean, are, are are there any success stories out there that that you could share? There are, Rick. Here in Florida, uh, in the past decades, uh, in Tampa Bay in the nineteen eighties, uh, literally hundreds of millions of dollars were invested right up front. At that point, it was a very small invested investment that had huge, huge positive impacts, and that is. Uh, they converted the wastewater plants around Tampa Bay to tertiary treatment, which is also known as advanced wastewater treatment, that pulls out uh, 90% of the nutrients uh, from the wastewater. And within a couple years, the nutrient loads into Tampa Bay were cut by 60% as they converted these plants. We saw seagrasses recover in Tampa Bay to levels of the 1950s. Uh, wow. The same law, and in fact, it was a a, a, um, a local law in in uh, West Florida, uh, also mandated for Sarasota Bay uh, that wastewater plants that the investments were made. Once we saw there was impacts on Sarasota Bay, uh, just like Tampa Bay was severely impacted by algal blooms, when they invested the money right up front, uh, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in local cities and counties uh, along these estuaries. Again, in Sarasota Bay, uh, there was market recovery of seagrasses uh, back to 1950s levels. 
there was recovery of scallop fisheries. Uh, these are large success stories. However, as population continues to grow in these areas, we still see the impact of non-point source pollution escalating where we dealt with the serious point sources from wastewater plants. But also further in Sarasota Bay, if you don't con continue to invest in wastewater infrastructure and to get water clean to tertiary levels, uh, we still have examples in Sarasota Bay where wastewater uh, that is not fully treated is impacting Sarasota Bay and causing uh, algal blooms and a species called lingbia. It's a slimy algae overgrowing seagrasses uh, in areas where seagrasses have been recovering. So we have some great examples. Uh, the whole world looks at Tampa Bay and Sarasota Bay, but also Chesapeake Bay as an example where wastewater uh, pollution was mitigated by large investments in wastewater infrastructure up front, and we've seen recovery in these estuaries. Uh, but the take-home message is we have to stay vigilant as we continue to grow to make sure our wastewater infrastructure is adequate so we don't have continued dumping and incidents where we see algal blooms uh, where we've restored seagrasses and fisheries. We don't want to go backwards where we've made these advances. Yeah, and to, and to give a nod to to Brandon Schuler, Executive Director, and to, to Justin Bloom, the, the Sunshine Coast Waterkeeper, um, Brandon did a um, a documentary called St. Pete Unfiltered while um, while the while the waterkeeper was suing the city of St. Pete and went on to sue the uh, Sarasota County, I believe. Um, the city of St. Pete just absolutely refused to, to deal with um, their wastewater issues, and they spent something like a billion dollars litigating, litigating over a three hundred million dollar problem. And um, uh, Justin taught them a pretty nasty lesson. Um, and so, and then down down in Sarasota, they were much more willing to work with folks in, in terms of improvements. But um, there are um, there are some real bad actors in this in this uh, arena that really don't want to do anything; just want to grow, 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 and not be concurrent. And uh, it's required some some really hard nosed tactics, namely litigation, to try to protect these places that it's like Tampa Bay and Sarasota Bay. That you know we're are, are shiny examples for the world about you know what happens to an estuary when you take care of it, and I'll just add you know I, my my father was an attorney and he was traveling all the time when I was a kid and usually he would take me with him wherever um wherever he had business and intended to get some fishing in on the side and Tampa Bay and Sarasota Bay were places I went back to repeatedly in the late 70s and 80s and they're a mess I mean they look like the Indian River Lagoon now and um you know now you know we. Our organization is based in St. Petersburg on Tampa Bay. We have a lot of um, meetings on on the decks, flat skiffs, and and you wouldn't believe the seagrass, you wouldn't believe the fisheries you have there for for, for even for a place that has millions of people living on it, you know. But you know, again, as Peter pointed out, the investments were made in the '80s to allow to to get the nutrients under control. We need to continue to make those investments, and we can still have a thriving fishery and with healthy ecosystems. Yeah, and 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 something that. Um, it's interesting too that I know, which is a a natural climate change solution, is that seagrass absorb a ton of CO2. I mean, I, I know that generally. I'm, I'm, but that to me is is kind of a another way of showing how this is interconnected with climate change and and wastewater, right? Because if you clean up your wastewater problems, that's killing your seagrass. Well, then that seagrass come back, comes back, absorbs CO2 to solve climate change and enhance your fishery. 
I mean, am I am I wrong in, in making that connection, I guess? Well, let me say this, Rick. You know, we know that uh, one of the ways to solve uh, excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is to get carbon uh, synced into ecosystems on long term. Uh, we know that seagrass systems um, are, are long-lived ecosystems, meaning that if you put carbon into plant growth uh, and, and uh, angiosperm, seagrasses, you're going to hold carbon for the long term. However, uh, if they're not there and our nutrients and our carbon go into algal blooms, uh, these are not long-lived carbon sinks. And when they die off rather quickly, when we have uh, eutrophic estuaries and algal blooms, we actually cycle uh, not only a lot of uh, carbon dioxide, but also a lot of methane uh, and hydrogen sulfide into that system and then rapidly uh, out very quickly. So when we have a system that's hypertrophic from wastewater pollution, we're not storing carbon. We're providing temporary uh, large storages, but then we're releasing a lot of greenhouse gases from eutrophic estuaries wow. back into our atmosphere. It's a serious problem. That's unreal. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that about the algal bloom. So instead of having a long-term carbon sink, they are doing the work of absorbing CO2, and then they're they're released, you know, relatively quickly, uh, versus storing that um, uh, over the long term and and also enhancing the fishery and as a result. Right. Um, if we're so not moving carbon, and I'm sorry, if the carbon isn't going into seagrasses and healthy food sources, and then it's the fisheries, and it's strictly going to algal blooms that are not being consumed because they're toxic, then we're really not moving carbon into the food chain, up food webs, into places where we want to see production, and that is in fisheries. We don't want to be producing toxic algal blooms. Uh, this is not where we want to see our, our nutrients. Um, our productivity in our coastal waters. Uh, so we have seen uh, serious dysfunction in our food webs and our ecosystems and our primary nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and carbon are very much involved in the cascading impacts and the biogeochemical cycling uh, in the coastal zone. Interesting. Um, and well, so, so this, this sort of is the, uh, a big question. Um, you know, so so what is uh, the American Water Security Project doing to help solve this problem? Because it sounds like it needs to be addressed. You know, sounds like it needed to be addressed 30 years ago. But um, what 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 are y'all doing to, uh, to to help solve the problem? Well, you're talking about the climate change impacts, Rick. And um, you know, we've seen you know about 10 inches of sea level rise. Since, you know, since the early 70s, um, there's been a study in Miami-Dade County where the um, you know I can't I'm not, I can't recall the numbers off the top of my head, but gazillions of, um, of septic tanks are are underwater during the king tides or will be very shortly and, and a lot more over the long term. You know, so we're mobile, as Peter said, we're we're increasingly mobilizing wastewater to the coast because of climate impacts. Um, and uh, and so that's one of the things that we're talking to, to legislators about. Um, it's like, look, you've got a you've got an eighteen billion dollar problem in Florida alone right now. Um, it's it's going to get a lot more expensive, especially if we keep you know trying to dig our ways out of a hole by developing on on more septic tanks in, in flood prone areas. But you know, it may sound like an impossible mission as many people are, as there are in Florida and around the southeast the southeast U.S. coast. 
Um, but in the end, this this problem of, of wastewater mismanagement, uh, this this absence of water security, um, is a function of, um, of, of, of of it takes a dollar, the political will, a smart engineer, and some tools. That's what it takes. This isn't Everglades restoration. This isn't the, something as complex as you know putting putting piecing back together the world's you know it, it, the uh, a massive um, ecosystem uh, it, you know in 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 the world's largest wetland restoration project in human history. This is a plumbing problem. That's it. We need to call the plumber. And so what we're doing, the plumbers we're calling are our appropriators primarily. We're working with the people on the appropriations committees in the, in the state the house and Senate and, and in Congress. Um, we're working with, um, we're working with, um, it was sort of a, sort of um, a tale of two cities type approach. We're working with, um, the, uh, the the municipal leaders that really truly want to fix this problem and achieve water security, and we're you know, browbeating the the ones that that refuse to do anything about this. Um, you know, and and we're you know we're, we're bringing the, you know, this information to the public as, as a value proposition. You know, are, do you want to make a you know a significant investment in wastewater and reap all the benefits of healthy fisheries, water you can actually swim in without without getting sick? Um, more, you know, more, more water for reuse. I mean, more water for lawns and irrigation for, you know, X, Y, and Z, or do you want to swim in, you know, polluted waters that have no fish in them? And, and the next time we have a drought, everybody's going to be killing each other over the last drop of water. So, you know, we're working towards, you know, the, what we call water security and that's, you know, that it's clean. It's, and it's recycled. Uh, it's used optimally, and, um, and we're really getting somewhere. I mean, we've we've doubled the funding in the Florida legislature, at least the, the governor recommended for this this legislature in one cycle, just by raising the awareness of this. And you know, Senator Rubio has done an outstanding job. In, you know, he's on appropriations on the Senate side. He's he's plussed up the uh, a lot of the the the, the, po- the buckets of money in the EPA and the Department of Ag to fix these problems na- nationally. But it's nowhere near enough. And you know, one of the things that you know, it, it, it's occurred to us early on as we saw, looked at the size of this problem is there's never going to be enough money from just from the coffers of Congress or the coffers of um, the state legislature or much less, you know, local tax bases. And, oh, by the way, the United States is a trillion dollars in debt. And so how are we going to fix this? And one of the things that we're promoting uh, most ardently in the, in, on the Hill and in, in, on the federal level is a price on carbon that has, you know, that has you know, revenues coming back to fixing our wastewater infrastructure. And a lot of people are really, you know, have had that aha moment. Oh my God, we can't afford to pay for this by ourselves. And we're in debt. We need a new source of revenues here. So, Hey, um, you know, let's put a tax on something that'll curb our, our um, dependence upon, you know, greenhouse gases at the same time, you know, help us adapt in, in, in coastal and in other areas. I mean, climate change at this point, is, whether it's your trout stream in Montana or your trout flat in the Indian River Lagoon, it's being affected. It's being affected by CO2 and it's probably being affected by wastewater. So we, um, you know, we're looking in, in a nutshell, we're finding the funding, fu- the funding, creating this political safe space for the politicians to do the right thing and educating the public so that there's, the political will is there. No, I, I mean, I just, I think it's awesome. Um, the, the carbon tax too. I mean, you know, yeah, we do need to find ways to generate new revenue streams. And to me, you know, you, you, the thing about climate change, I think most people misinterpret that see this as, um, 
for whatever reason, they, for some reason, are not, they're disregarding the science. Um, but for the re- it, it seems like, oh, this is just too big of a problem to deal with, as opposed to looking at this as, look, this, this could be the greatest economic opportunity of the 21st century. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. to, to, rein, to reinvent and innovate. And I think that this is what y'all are doing is, is part of that solution. And I think is really the perfect example of what ha- of, of a problem that starts with population, that generates different forms of pollution, and the needs to have the political willpower to get it done. Well, as you said, in our current debt and uh, and, and we can't depend on, on on the coffers and taxpayers to pay for everything. Well, how do we get that done? Well, then we come, we create innovative solutions like a carbon tax, or um, I'm, you know, I'm sure that they'll continue to get more creative. But um, I love that y'all are um, solutions based um, in addressing a problem that, as you said, is um, you know, if you just wanted to boil it down and, and simplify it, we're talking about call, calling a plumber. So, um, you know. Kudos to y'all for, um, for 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 pro- providing solutions and, and what I think is um, you know uh, an inspiring story, um, which sort of leads me to to my next question is you know how 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 can I get involved? How can anyone listen to this? Uh, get involved and and support your work um, to help solve solve this problem. Well, Rick, we would love to have you um, join us. As, you know, your your business is one of our partner groups. Um, we, we're building a um, a network of folks. We're just calling partners um, that really reflect the Florida's economy. They're the folks that have joined so far are everybody from beachfront hoteliers to fishing guides to uh, tackle shop owners, dive shop owners, surf shop owners, bike rental places, uh, some conscientious ag guys, um, some conscientious developers, you know, we, we, we wanted to do this in a nonpartisan, bipartisan way and present ourselves, you know, as, as first and foremost, as, 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 as watermen, you know, fishermen and surfers and divers, et cetera, that we're the kind of the, the on the cutting edge of, of realizing the, 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 the scope and seriousness of this problem and as scientists, um, but really, you know, as as the as the business face of 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 our of our future, you know, of our present and our future, I mean, the people that we I mean, we all absolutely have to have clean water. It cascades through the economy in every single way, and so you know, we've 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 we'd love for um, the recreational fishing industry folks, um, you know, I know many many of you um, to join us and um, and help us. You know, send the right signals to uh, to Congress and to state legislators and, and local elected officials. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's awesome, and yeah, I'm, I'd be happy to 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 uh, participate and and have a merger strategies be be part of your your partner program. Um, I think that uh, one of the things, well, sir, and just so everyone knows, listening. If you want to check out the American Water Security Project, go to the website, awsproject.org. So that's awsproject.org. And there's a ton of good information. They've got a lot of good resources. And I see that you'll have a in a, uh, a, a take action section as well. So is that um, 
this is a way that uh, anyone listening that wants to help support uh, the American Water Security Project's mission um, can can certainly do that. Um, and y'all y'all have made it really easy, so um, I think that's great. Yeah, just shoot us an email um, or give us a call. We, we 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 will find you something for you to do. That's for sure. There's yeah. plenty to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, all right. So b- before we before we wrap things up, I do want to talk just a just a, a little bit of fishing. Um, and I've got to ask. So you know, Florida being I, I go down to the Everglades every year. Me and me and some friends from that I grew up with in Savannah. Uh, we we go down there every year, happy to support Florida's economy. Um, but we primarily are going for, for tarpon and um, love to catch snook and redfish also um, down in, in the Everglades. But, you know, we're kind of targeting tarpon. Um, what are, as, as Floridians, what are, what are some of your, your, your favorite species uh, to catch down there? Well, Mimi, you just said it for me. There's nothing I'd rather do than chase tarpon with a fly rod. Um, I mean, I just love those. And, and you know, I'm very worried about the um, tarpon fishery. I, I can't say that I'm seeing declines in it, but um, we've got some serious food web issues. You know, one of the things that they absolutely have to have to eat on their, their long migrations are pinfish. And you can't really have pinfish without seagrass. And we're losing seagrass just about everywhere. Um, and, you know, I'm worried about their, um, their juvenile habitats as well. They, they need these small anoxic creeks and, you know, we're you know, paving them over left and right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, I mean, I, my favorite thing in the world to do is, um, is chase tarp along the beach here in the treasure coast or, you know, down in the flats in Florida Bay and on the keys. Um, um, and, uh, hopefully we'll have a, a good run again this year. What about um? So you mentioned chasing them on fly. You, do you have a, a a lucky fly that you like to to, to throw at the, the silver king? Um, you know, up here on the beaches, we've got a lot of thread herring and sardines. So you know, a lot, a lot of the eat me pattern. You know, any of those the Pugliese bait fish patterns work work really well in the clear water. Um, you know, and around the bridges and stuff at night. Um. Our mutual friend Scott Scott Wagner. Well, actually, I keep it around saying this loud, but um, yeah, never mind. <laughs> but we've got I've got a, a woolly headed black fly that um that we fish around the the, the dock lights that um that you know, in the bridge lines. It's just it's um either brown, purple, or black, and vibrates a lot. And you know, tarpon seem to be able to find it pretty well. And then you know, I got lucky enough to catch one of those Palolo worm hatches about a decade ago, and in oh. um in in uh, down at Bahia Honda and uh. And uh, I was fishing with a young man named Gordon. I'm based on his last name now. But uh, that was amazing to watch how, just with the ferocity that they struck those flies with. Um, that was cool. I hope to replicate that experience sometime. I haven't been so lucky, yeah. but that was wild. But uh, Yeah, that, um, that's uh, that's on my bucket list is to catch the worm hatch. Yeah, <laughs> that would be pretty uh, epic. Yeah. But, uh, and, you know, I should add to Rick that, you know, it's not all doom and gloom, you know, the trout situation has me in particular bummed out. I've probably caught as many 10 pound plus trout on flies in light tackle as, as anybody. And, and just it was a favorite challenging fishery is it's gone, but you know, 
even like in the Stewart area where I live around Sebastian, up around Sebastian, England, Fort Pierce, you know, we're, we're still catching lots of pompanos and reds and, and snook and, you know, and hope, hope, hope springs eternal. We've seen these ecosystems rebound. We just got to get the work done. And in the meantime, you know, um, measure your expectations, but you know, if you come to Florida, there's plenty to catch. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's one of the, you know, the things about, you know, nature, I think in, in general, I mean, it's very resilient if you just give it a chance. And so I think, mm-hmm. um, what, what y'all are doing is, is, you know, one of the, one of the solutions to help give it a chance. So, um, yeah, my, my hat is, is off to all of you. Um, I appreciate very much the, the work that y'all are doing and, um, and I also appreciate your, your time today. Um, it was great. This was really educational for me, so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, yeah, I just want to thank you both for your time. Okay. Thank you so much for having us, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Absolutely. Yep. And so just, just one more time, if you want to uh, support the work of the American Water Security Project, head over to awsproject.org. And, um, yeah, hope, uh, hope you'll have a good rest of the day. Thanks for tuning in to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. For more episodes, we can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks.